A very good morning to you and a happy new year. My name's Neil. I'm married to the wonderful Kate. Together we lead this amazing, wonderful expression of the body of Christ, the South of Sunday Vineyard. So it is a new year, and as we turn into the new year, what better way to begin uh, the new year and, and carry on in the way that we mean to go on, and that is with the whole subject of prayer. Now, if you've read your Bibles, uh, prayer crops up a lot in the Scriptures. Uh, the Bible talks about prayer a lot. It was the one thing that G- the disciples asked Jesus to help them with. They said, Lord, teach us how to pray. I didn't say, Lord, you know, Lord, teach us how to do evangelism or teach us how to do worship or teach us how to plant churches. The thing that they asked Jesus to do was they said, teach us how to pray. They kind of somehow knew that if they were going to see the kingdom of God extended, if they were going to see the kingdom of heaven break through on earth as it is in heaven, God's will to be done, they knew that there was some kind of connection with prayer, that prayer was important, that prayer mattered. They'd been watching Jesus. They'd been hanging out with Jesus, and they'd been watching him kind of taking himself off. And he'd go off, and he'd spend time with the Father, and he'd talk with the Father, and he'd seek out the Father, and then he would come back, and he'd come back after spending time in the presence of the Father, and he'd have this fresh revelation, and he'd have this fresh power, and the disciples would see that. Most of Jesus' most incredible miracles would happen after he'd spent like a whole night in prayer. Maybe there's something there for us this year. Maybe if we're not spending half a night in prayer, we're missing out on something like vital that Jesus considered essential. The disciples, though, they kind of realize that prayer is important. and they, They say to Jesus, Lord, teach us how to pray. And as we embark on this new year, I think that needs to be the cry of our heart as well. Lord, teach us to pray. And this morning, as we start on this new year, with all of its wonderful opportunities, hopes and dreams, you know, New Year is like a a blank page waiting to be written on, but it also carries with it all sorts of risks and threats and fears. As a church, as individuals, as a corporate body, um, we want to start, as we mean to go on, by looking at prayer, and then um, if I can stop talking soon enough, we can actually do some. So if you've got a Bible, why don't you turn with me to 1 Chronicles chapter 17. 1 Chronicles chapter 17, it's in the Old Testament, the words will come up, we'll come to that in a minute. First, let me give you some background uh, to what's going on here. Uh, the passage is all about David, King David, uh, and David has fought all his battles, and he's won all his wars, and things are going okay for him uh, at that, this point, and uh, he's sort of sitting around, and he kind of gets to this moment where he realizes that... Um, He's not only living in this really nice house, like made of cedar, right? He's got this really nice house, but he's living in this really nice house made of cedar. And meanwhile, God is still living, as it were, in what is by now a pretty, uh, a pretty beaten up old tent, the tabernacle. That's where God's dwelling is. And David, he thinks to himself, you know, oh, there's something that's not right about this. I can't, I don't think I can be living in this really nice house while God's living in this um, tent, don't know what to do about this. Uh, uh, Great idea, I know. What I'll do, I'll build a house for God because right now I've got a nicer house than God and that's a tad awkward, as it would be. 
And so he goes to see the prophet Nathan, and he says, Nathan, you know, I've got a great idea. I've decided I'm going to build God a house, um, which is a slightly strange concept when you think about it. But Nathan, just to show that the prophets don't always get it right, says, wonderful idea, wonderful, well done, good, good, good idea, well done. And um, that's not the right answer. So God then has to take Nathan to one side and says, Look, nah, honestly, I really don't want a house, okay? Um, I'm fine. But, I mean, I really like where David's coming from. This is me paraphrasing God, okay? He's not actually doesn't say this, okay? So, but it's this idea that God actually really likes something about David. We know that God loves David's heart and that David is a man after God's own heart. And so he doesn't really want a house, but he likes David's heart and his intention and his desire to bless God. And so what God does is he says, do you know what? I'm not going to, I don't want David to build me a house. Do you know what? I'm going to build David a house instead. Um, And that's where we pick up in verse 16. God is basically saying, "I I want to establish your house forever. So here we are in 1 Chronicles chapter 17, verse 16. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord. He's kind of slightly overwhelmed by it all. And he can do nothing really but just sit in the presence of God. He, gave, he goes in and sits before the Lord and he says, Who am I, Lord God, and what is my family that you have brought me thus far? And as if this were not enough in your sight, my God, you have spoken about the future of the house of your servant. You, Lord God, have looked on me as though I were the most exalted of men. What more can David say to you for honoring your servant? For you know your servant, Lord. For the sake of your servant and according to your will, you have done this great thing and made known all these great promises. There is no one like you, Lord, and there is no God but you. As we've heard with our own ears, and who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whose God went out to redeem a people for himself and to make a name for yourself and to perform great and awesome wonders by driving out nations from before your people whom you redeemed from Egypt. You made your people Israel your very own forever, and you, Lord, have become their God. And now, Lord, let the promise you have made concerning your servant and his house be established forever. Do as you promised. Do as you promised. Now, I want to suggest that when it comes to prayer, these are some of the uh, most important words, four most important words. Uh, and most powerful words in the Bible when it comes to prayer. Do as you promised. Do as you promised. Jesus says, if you ask anything in my name, it will be done for you. And, And basically what he's saying is, if you ask anything in my name, if you ask anything that's in line with the character of Jesus, if you ask anything that is a reflection of the truth about who I am, if you ask anything that's in line with my word and my will and my desire, if you ask anything in my name, it will be done. Now, when Jesus says that, he's not saying, he's never promised that he will continually say amen to all of our prayers. That's not what he's saying. But what he is saying, he's he's saying, if we will say amen to his prayers, if we can come into agreement with his prayers, that's when miracles happen. That's when the kingdom of heaven breaks through. So if that's the case, we have to work out what Jesus is praying for. We have to work out what God's desire and God's intention and God's will and God's 
purposes are. And then what we do as a church and as individuals is we come into the slipstream of that, that will and that desire, and we say, Amen. We come into that in agreement and we say, Yay, and Amen to that with our words and with our lives and with our actions. Or as Wimber used to say, with the words, the walk and the wallet. And what we do is we say, as we say, yea and amen to what God wants, that's where we find the miraculous taking place. And that's where we can see the beginnings of miracles happening in the wake of all of that. You see, it's with our free wills that we excluded God's will from the world. You know, that's kind of how this whole thing went slightly pear-shaped, to say the least. Back in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve basically said, on our behalf, not your will, God, but mine be done, when they ate the fruit. That's the power of human choice, and we all have it. You know, we all know that choice is powerful, but it's, it's by our choices given by God and established by our free will, that we can either say yes to God or no to God. You know, it's your choice whether you came to church this morning. You know, most of you, I hope, weren't forced or compelled or kidnapped or dragged here kicking and streaming. Some of you might have been. It'll be over soon, don't worry. You know, it's, it's, it's your choice when you come here whether you're going to push in and actively engage in worship. That's your choice. Then you've got somebody here who's leading, someone who's creating an environment and the encouragement, but it's down to you whether you're going to engage or not. That's entirely your choice. You can choose to push in to worship and worship God, or you can choose to just sit on your phone. That's your choice. You can choose whether you're going to read the Scriptures no one's going to force you to do that. No one's going to make you do that. That is your decision. That's your choice. Am I going to get to know God more this year? I'm going to push in to the Scriptures and the Word of God. It's your choice whether you're going to pray or not. No one's going to make you do these things. They're your choices. They're your decisions. And these are choices and decisions that we are all facing all of the time. The question that we're all facing all of the time, almost every minute of every single day, is are we going to say yes to God in this moment or are we going to say no to God? When our forebears said no to God, um, every sickness, every cancer, every sin began to get sucked into the vacuum that had been created by us, unplugging from the source of all life and all goodness and all righteousness. So how much more powerful is it, therefore, when we start to use our free wills not to say no to God, but to say yes to God. Yes, God, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done. Yes, I want to get behind this. You know, Jesus, no wonder we find Jesus himself right on the tipping point, interestingly, in another garden. Not the Garden of Eden, but the Garden of Gethsemane. And, you know, we've got to remember that Jesus in that moment, in the Garden of Gethsemane, before he goes to the cross, Jesus is there as a human. And as a human, it's almost, he's almost pre-wired to be selfish. It's almost a default mechanism within him whereby he's going to say, not your will, but my will be done. 
And that's why he's there in this other garden and he's sweating blood. This battle that's raging as to whose will is going to get done is so great that he sweats blood. Because he's basically saying, do you know what? I really don't want to die. That's what he says to the father. He says, do you know what? If there is any plan B right now, I'll take it. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. By the way, if you ever struggle with being honest with God in prayer, take courage from the fact that Jesus prayed that he wouldn't have to go through with the cross. That's how honest Jesus was with his father in prayer about how he really felt. So Jesus is there in the garden, sweating blood, and he's saying, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. And you can imagine, like at that moment, the whole of hell is leaning in and listening, going, yes, we've done it. We've won. The battle's done. It's won. He's going to chicken out. But Jesus doesn't stop there. Jesus goes on and he says, yet, not my will, but your will be done. And on that hinge, the whole of human history swings. Because in this garden, we see a reversal of the curse that took place in that first garden. It's a human, it's Jesus as a human, using his free will as the place for God to move. It's a human being saying, I am going to be an amen to God's will, in this case, even if it kills me. And so it is for us. As we choose to push in and to pray and to live our lives as an amen to God's will, that's when the miraculous happens. And Jesus preempts all of this when he says, you know, if you ask anything in my name, it will be done for you. This is what he's saying. So when we work out what is in Jesus' name, or to put it another way, what's in God's word or what's in God's desire or what God has promised, when we pray those things, this whole thing becomes incredibly powerful. Things really start to happen. And that's why when we pray those four words, do as you promise, Jesus is basically saying the miraculous is going to happen. Miracles are going to happen. The kingdom of heaven is going to break through. So it's all really simple, really. All it means is that every single one of us, as we pray, we just need to do two things. We first of all have to work out what God has promised. That's thing number one. And then thing number two, we've just got to ask for it. Okay, we just got to work out what God has promised, and then we've got to ask for it. Okay, that sounds simple, but it has some problems. Now, the problem, uh, as we all know, comes for some people um, because we don't know like what God has promised, really. Um, now, that might be because we have never actually bothered to read our Bibles, because it's all kind of in here, right? Uh, in the it's in the guidebook. Um, so. It may be because we've never really read our Bibles or because we're not really tuning in and listening to the voice of the Spirit of God or it may be because when we hear the voice of the Spirit of God speaking through the Scriptures or speaking to us, we don't really believe it when it comes or um, we get really busy and we just forget about it. And so for those of us in that category, our prayer lives, if we have one, tend to be around things that are in our own sort of orbit, you know, where we are the sun around which everything else revolves. And so for those of us in this category, our prayer lives tend to be things um, that are related to what's going on with us right now. 
It's like really immediate, and it's like really me-focused. And so much of my prayers when I'm in this place will depend on, you know, what's in the bank account. Do you know what I mean? And, like, and if there's nothing in the bank account, it's like, oh, God, oh, God, please put something in the bank account. Or, you know, I, when I'm under huge pressure at work, it's like, oh, God, oh, God, oh, God, please, you know, slay my colleagues. <laughs> it's a real prayer, people. It's a real prayer. You know, um, for some of you, it's like, you know, uh, how long, O oh Lord, how long, O oh Lord, must I be single? You know, I've cried out for the boyfriend or the girlfriend or whatever. Hopefully just one of the two. Um, you know what I'm saying. And of course, because God is gracious and kind, God's fine with all of that kind of stuff. But we're called to pray much more than all of that. We're called to pray God's word into being. Do as you promised. So we need to know what God's word is. And then there are another group of people who kind of know what God's word is, but they somehow, because they know it, they like think it's all automatic. And so they're, you know, if you're in this camp, we're the sort of people who think, well, you know, God said it, and, and he's God, and he's, he's big, and he's powerful, and he's clever. So it's just going to happen. And you know, what difference can little old me and my little old prayers make? Not, not much. But you see, they're not understanding the power of free will and of God's strange desire to partner with us and to co-labor with us so that we co-labor with Christ, of our wills saying yes to God's wills. And um, it's as we as the church say no to the plans of the enemy and yes to the plans and the will of God that we bring his will to bear on the world. Firstly, through prayer. And then through practical action, do as you promised. Okay, so first of all, we must know what God has promised. We must know God's word. At the beginning of this year, please, please, please let me remind you again, let me exhort you again to make a covenant with this book over the course of this year. We must know the scriptures. We must Listen to the word of God. Man said, "You shall not." Jesus said, "You shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Father." We must devote ourselves to the word of God and the Scriptures. We are not just called to read the Bible. We are called to digest it. We are called to meditate on it, to chew upon it, to let the word of life give energy and life to us. Do not neglect the scriptures, please. And not only do we have to devote ourselves to the scriptures and the teaching of the scriptures, but then we have to act on it. We have to respond to it. We have to engage with it. And we engage with it by praying God's word and by doing God's word. That's our job. That's what we're supposed to be doing. Okay, anyway. Back to David. David says he wants to do something nice for God. God says, do you know what? I'm going to do something unbelievably better for you. You were going to build me a house. Well, I'm going to build you an everlasting house. I'm going to make your name famous forever is what God says to David. And in this kind of situation, it's almost like David, David's almost like frustrated with God. It's like, I was trying to, you've done it again. You've out-blessed me, God. I was trying to do something really nice for you, like build you a nice house. And you've, you've, you've trumped me again. You've, you've, you've beaten me again. It's almost like he's, not cross, but 
I said, honestly, God, you are so kind. You are so good. You are so generous. It's maddening. It's infuriating. I can't do anything for you. And so what happens is David just sits before the Lord. You know, this is, remember, this is David. This is the guy who wrote half the Psalms. You know, he wasn't short of a phrase or two when he needed one. But there he is. He's kind of just literally awestruck. He's dumbstruck because of God's goodness and his grace and his generosity. He's literally kind of wiped out by the blessing of God. He's, he's just lost in wonder and love and awe at God's grace. He just kind of sits there before the Lord. This is a really important posture when it comes to us praying. Because what he does now is he begins, as we've just read, to articulate his wonder and his amazement at God's blessing. He says, he starts by saying, who am I and what is my family that you have brought me thus far? Um, a couple of weeks ago, some of you were here and um, John and Debbie Wright were here. John and Debbie Wright lead the vineyard churches in the UK and Ireland. They were on a sort of a surprise visit, which was awesome, uh, to celebrate 10 years of Kate and uh, me leading this church. And I remember on the 14th of September, they were a bit late because it, it was actually September, the anniversary, but um, we won't hold that against them. Um, I remember on the 14th of September, 2008, um, we were here, John and Ellie Mumford, they'd laid hands on us and they prayed for us. Kate and I just sat down and we prayed these words. We prayed just, who am I, Lord God? And what is my family that you have brought me thus far? It was like, what the heck is going on? How, how did this happen? How did we ever end up? with this gig. Sometimes we're just utterly blown away just by God's goodness and his grace and his mercy and his kindness. And that heart, that position that David's in is important in terms of our posture as we come to pray. Not that this has got anything to do with prayer, but I think the Spirit of God this morning wants to soften some of our hearts once again as we come to that place of utter amazement and awe at what he has already done. You know, some of you are sat here this morning and, and you, you've, you've been healed. Like God has healed, physically healed your body at some point. It's like, wow, like that was awesome. Uh, some of you are here this morning and you're, you're married and you never thought that you would be. And you're like, wow, look what... God has done. Some of you are here this morning and you now have children, whether by conventional means or through adoption, but that you never thought you would have, but for God's goodness. Some of you have been set free from some really dark places in your past. Some of you have been just been, you've been so blessed by the Lord that you just have to pinch yourself when you remember and you remind yourself of how incredibly kind and generous he has been. Take a moment this morning to join with David. Who am I, Lord God, and what is my family that you brought me this far? Don't allow yourself this year to be robbed of the joy of all that he has already done just because he hasn't done everything yet. 
Let me say that again. Don't allow yourself to be robbed of all the joy of all that he has already done just because he hasn't done everything yet. Uh, some of us, and I don't say this lightly, some of us are carrying into this new year you know, deep burdens, deep fears, situations that matter more than words can say. You're crying out to God for it. But you know what? Don't let that heart cry distract you from the joy of all that God has already done. Take some time to remember how God has brought you safely thus far. In fact, um, the key to finding faith for the things that God has yet to do is by celebrating all that he has already done. The key to finding faith for all the things that God has yet to do is by celebrating all that he's already done. You know, we're not called to pray sort of, you know, ex nihilo, out of nothing. Do you see, like, just sort of clenching our buttocks and saying, you know, I'm going to really try hard to believe this. That's not how it's supposed to be. You know, what we're called to do is we're called to see the sparks, if you like, the little flickers of flame that God has already begun something, and then we're supposed to just go to that place and pour petrol on it and watch it go. And what the enemy wants to do with us, he wants to get us really worried and really anxious about something, and then he wants us to separate. He wants to separate us, either on a conscious level or an emotional level, from the reality of the things that, of, of all the things that God has done thus far in our lives. And so, all we can see is this massive gap, this massive lack, this massive, oh, how God are we ever going to get through this? We forget all of the things that God has brought us safely through. The enemy knows that if he can separate you from what God has done, then you will stop rejoicing over the past. And when we stop rejoicing over the past, we stop believing for the future. So if you need a big healing, um, maybe rejoice over the smaller ones that you've seen and think, well, you know, maybe if God can do that, maybe he can do more. Go and find those smaller flickers of flame where God has, you've seen God do small healings and then go and pour petrol on those things and imagine what God might want to do. Remember that faith comes by hearing and it's by hearing what God has been doing that builds our faith. Uh, Someone once said, you know, if you've only got one miracle story, tell that one story until you've got another one. You know, and we're kind of like, well, you know, I've already told that story. I can't tell another one. It's like, well, it doesn't work like that in the Bible. Look at the Bible. You read of this, something incredible that Jesus did, and then you flick onto another gospel, and it's like you read the same thing told from a different perspective. You read the Old Testament. It's like, I've read this before, like, like 10 times. Like, why are they telling it again, again, and again, and again, and again? The story of God, how God has intervened from all these different perspectives, all these different places. You see it over and over and over again. Stories and situations of God's uh, goodness and his faithfulness told over and over again. And it's done so that we would remember so that we would hear, we would have our faith restored and renewed and refreshed 
And that as we remember all of God's goodness, that would generate faith and revelation from it and give us hope and confidence for the future where the future feels really uncertain and bleak. Remember God's faithfulness to you. Celebrate that faithfulness because it's in thanksgiving that we find faith for what God has yet to do. And so maybe there's something, uh, there's a sense that some of us coming back to that softness of heart that just celebrates and remembers all that God has done. And you know, it can be really hard, I get that. Like, my memory is like really, really short, and uh, I just become overwhelmed with the present daunting realities and sit down and scratch my head and say, you know, what's God done? It's like, mm, nothing. You know, I can't remember, he hasn't done anything. Um, this year, I've, um, I've started a Thanksgiving journal. It's really small because I... <laughs> I've got really small writing. I started a Thanksgiving journal because I know that I'm really hoping to this. And um, it's been really good. So I've just been doing this every day. <laughs> You're so mean. Encourage me. That's great, Neil. Well done, you. Um, <laughs> If I give it a bigger, I know I would run out of things to say. So anyway, start small. I don't want to show you anymore. I'm going to put it away. <laughs> I started a Thanksgiving journal. It's like a really thick, I'll show it to you one day, but it's like a massive, massive like, volume. It's like Encyclopedia Britannica. Um, but just the discipline, the act of remembering has been really interesting for me. And it caused me to go, well, actually, yeah, God, you are incredible. Look at what you've done. Look at how far you've brought me. And it, it has made me, it's made my heart humble. And actually, it, it causes me to pray. It's like, wow, well, yeah, okay, I'm going to pray. Suddenly, I just got this desire to pray. I want to surrender my life again and again, just crying out to God for his will to be done and his kingdom to come. So let's create a culture whereby we're remembering and celebrating the small things that God has done that we might have faith for the things he has yet to do. Jesus said, how much more does your heavenly father want to give you good gifts? Um, Archbishop Trench said, we mustn't conceive of prayer as overcoming God's reluctance, but as laying hold of his highest willingness. Sometimes I think our prayer lives is like we're trying to twist God's arm. This belligerent old miserable man in the sky who doesn't want to give us anything. And so we've just got to, please, please, please. Archbishop Trent is saying, no, no, no. Prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance, but it's laying hold of his highest willingness. And prayer begins with this whole sense of amazement. It's, it's this amazement, it's this remembering that catalyzes us and it fuels and it feeds our prayer. And then asking God to do as he promised, that is birthed out of remembering God's goodness. You see it in Acts chapter 4, I'll finish with this. You see it in Acts chapter 4, um, got this great scenario, Peter and John, they've been, they've been summoned uh, to the Sanhedrin, they've been told to stop preaching the gospel. And, and what they do is they go back to the church, they get told, ticked off, and they go back to the church, and they tell the church, you know what, we've been banned. Like, we've been banned, we can't preach the gospel anymore. And it's really interesting in Acts chapter 4 to see the church's response. The church's immediate response, it says, is that together they lifted their voices in prayer. You know, they didn't just go, oh, dear, well, you, you better stop then. Or they didn't say, oh, that's not very good. We should pray about that. Or they didn't say, oh, let's have a, we need, we need a strategy meeting. Like, there's got to be a way around this. We'll, we'll appeal to somebody, like, higher up. 
some authority, I do. That, like in the midst of all of the opposition and persecution, they literally just erupted in prayer. That was their gut reaction. And then what you've got in Acts chapter 4 is, um, is this prayer. Um, and it's actually, uh, in some ways, it's a bit of a rubbish prayer. You, you know, because you, you, you'd want your, you'd, ideally, if you're putting your prayers, the prayer's going to end up in the Bible, you'd want it to, you know, like rhyme occasionally and be easily turned into a worship song or something like that. I don't know. Anyway, this, this prayer is 136 words long, right? You're all going to start counting now, so stop counting and listen to me. Just take my word for it. It's 136 words long, but the first 103 words of this prayer are them just telling God things about him that he already knows. And so here they are, they're in real trouble, they're right up against it. The authorities have told them to shut up, and they're like going, oh God, yeah, God, do you remember this? And God's going, uh, yes, yes, I remember, I was, I was there. And, um, and they're like, oh, God, do you remember this? And do you remember how you... And God's like, yes, yes, I, I actually, I did that. So, yeah, I, I definitely remember. And then they go on, they go, God, you're amazing, and God, you're wonderful. And they keep on going. All this declaration and remembering and proclamation about God and his goodness and his greatness and no, 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 no. 103 words. What they're doing is they're putting their crisis, because they're in a real sticky situation, they're putting their crisis into the context of the story of God. They are immersing their current situation into the story of God. They are putting it into the presence of God. They're putting it into the power of God. They're putting it into all of God's greatness. And they do that for like 103 words, like three quarters of the prayer, they do that contextualizing of their crisis in the story of God. And then just in the last 33 words, they actually ask for something. And what they ask for isn't that God would smite you know, the, the, the Sadducees with a, with a, with a, with a plague. Um, they just ask that God would give them courage not to stop talking about Jesus. To not stop talking about Jesus quadruple negatives in there somewhere. And prayer, it begins with a sense of amazement and, 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 and just putting ourselves in this context. And then asking God to do as he promised begins with us remembering God's goodness. It says at the end of that prayer, the room in which they were meeting shook. And they preached the word of God with boldness. So it turns out that that's actually some prayer. And all they did was contextualize their need in the story of God. We've got to understand that we, as a people of the promise, that we're not operating in a vacuum, um, but that we are part of God's story, which is why knowing his story is so incredibly important. Where do we fit in this story? How do we contextualize ourselves and our current situation in the context of his story? How can we see again and again and again and again that he is faithful and that that builds in us a sense of hope and of an amazement and joy so that out of our amazement we engage in prayer as we remind ourselves of God's goodness and then we begin asking in the right way for God to do as he has promised. And 
getting our heads in the game and in the, in the right place before God is going to make all the difference. Because we don't find healing in the sickness. We find healing when we come to the healer. You know, we're not going to find peace in the storm. We're going to find it in the creator. We're not going to find faith for breakthrough just by trying harder, but by remembering the faithfulness of God. Prayer begins with a sense of amazement and asking God to do as his promise begins with remembering God's goodness. And that's, that's what all we're calling you to as the church this week. Um, a week of prayer. Um, like it's not even a week of prayer. It's like it's a series of hours of prayer. All we're asking is just to sign up for an hour of prayer and, and just pray wherever you are. And we would like... Every single person who sees South Western Vineyard as their church family to sign up and pray. Okay? We want to see everybody who thinks that this is their church family to join in with this, right? Because we are a family. We are a community, a fellowship of believers. And so we want to do this together. Uh, let's be like that early church whose first instinct, you know, no matter what they were facing, is to pray. Let's make that choice. This is a choice. You can go, well, I'm not doing that. But can I encourage you to make a choice and a decision to go, actually, yes, I am going to do that. And I'm going to pray once this week for an hour. I'm going to sign up. I'm going to let Neil and Kate know that I'm praying on Wednesday morning at 3 o'clock in the morning because that's a popular slot. (laughs) Or you're going to pray like every day or every other day for an hour, right? But like, please, can we ask you to choose to engage with this. Not just go, oh, yeah, someone else will do that. Like, I'm not really a prayer. Like, there are like, other people who are proper prayers, and I'm not really one of those. No, no, no. Like, choose today to engage with this. Choose to sign up for this, right? Um, because we believe this is an important part of what the Lord is calling us to for this year, and we think it's an important part of everybody playing, everybody getting involved. Not one person missing out. And uh, once you've signed up, Kate will send out some stuff uh, later on today or the beginning of the week just to give you some idea of how to pray for an hour, okay? So um, just in case you're not sure what that looks like, right, um, she'll send you some stuff, okay? So can we encourage you to do that? Um, Let me just end with this. This is uh, an extract from The Circle Maker by um, Mark Patterson. He says this, what I'm about to share has the power to revolutionize the way that you pray and the way that you read your Bible. I said this at the beginning. He says this, We often view prayer and scripture reading as two distinct spiritual disciplines without much overlap. But what if they were meant to be hyperlinked? One of the primary reasons we don't pray through, and, and what he means by that is like we don't pray until we see breakthrough, is, is because he thinks we run out of things to say. He says our lack of persistence is really a lack of conversation. It's like an awkward conversation, he says. We don't know what to say, and our prayers are as meaningless as a conversation about the weather. The solution, he says, is to pray through the Bible. This is one of the challenges. You know, we usually start the new year by talking about the Bible and the Scriptures and the Word of God, and we usually encourage you to read through the Bible in a year and all that kind of stuff. He says the solution is to pray through the Bible. He says this, prayer was never meant to be a monologue, it was meant to be a dialogue. So, think of scripture 
as God's part of the conversation, and prayer as our part. Think of God's part of the conversation as Scripture, and our part of the conversation as prayer. Scripture is God's way of initiating a conversation, and prayer is our way of responding. The paradigm shift happens when you realize that the Bible wasn't meant to be read through. The Bible was meant to be prayed through. And if you pray through the Bible, you will never run out of things to talk about because we will know what God has promised. And our prayer lives will be, do as you promised. Make sense? 